Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podsite, everybody. Uh, it's Carlo. Um, and I'm going to be going solo here because apparently, sadly, Pete uh, had sort of an issue. He said he got some sort of a different type of flu, like a simian flu, he said, something like that. Um, so we're going to be, he's going to be laid up for a while, I guess. I hope he makes it. Um, but with us today, we're, we have Aaron, is it Cassius? Uh, Cassius, and, yeah. Cassius, okay. And then uh, Carly. <laughs> Is it Gomez? It's Gomes. You're, Gomes. you're zero for two, Carlo. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, I made the right decision in not going to, into the big leagues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and we're going to be talking about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, so, uh, I'm going to come right out and say that this is the first time I never saw this. Uh, this is the first time I saw it. And uh, I am glad that I got an opportunity to see this. I, I sort of regret not seeing it in the big screen because it must have been really interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, this is this is a really fun one. And uh, yeah, thanks first of all, Carla, for having us on on the show. Um, and thanks for giving us a chance to to talk about this movie in particular. You know, I, I kind of offered this one up. Um, Instead of of the first of the trilogy, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, or or you know the conclusion of the trilogy, um, with sort of the uh, you know addendum that you you need not see the first film in order to understand this one. It it uh, does a good job of throwing you right into the action, explaining everything you need to know, and is actually so uh, distinct as a film itself from. From the first in the trilogy, you know, not just because of a, a different director, but also just sort of in, in its aesthetics and and its narrative that uh, I think it's it's a perfectly fine place to drop in and watch. Um, but the whole trilogy is is pretty rewarding overall. So um, if you have the time to do it, I would absolutely encourage it. Yeah, I, I I am I am I will agree with you that I I was going to ask you why the second one in a trilogy, but after watching uh, it, it, I didn't feel like I missed anything. Like they they chose a very good point to start uh, the story, so it doesn't feel like you're continuing from something else. Like yes, there's something that happened before that, obviously, but it feels self-contained in a way. Which is which is a really interesting decision in my in 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 my view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, I, so I I was a person who saw all three of these films um, when they were uh, in their theatrical runs. Glad that I did. Uh, but you know, I I distinctly remember uh, sort of the the fanfare around the first of the trilogy, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, because you know the trailer had come out. Um, it looked a little bit corny. Obviously there was like the bitter taste of the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, uh, from like 2001, <laughs> still in people's mouths, even a decade later. Um, 
And then the reviews started coming in and, uh, you know, like the tomato meter score and the Metacritic score wound up being like overwhelmingly positive. So I gave it a shot and, uh, was, was really, really, uh, pleasantly surprised by the first film. Um, in retrospect now, definitely the worst of the three and definitely the <laughs> one that's like the silliest with the most sort of like referential points and, and sort of like fan service. Um, mm-hmm. but, but the story itself was, was, new and exciting. The special effects were solid. Um, I gave it a pass, uh, you know, even though James Franco's there, you know, just doing kind of his dull <laughs> stare. Uh, but, but no, it, it ended up just being like this, like super pleasant surprise. And, and, you know, it, it certainly, uh, solidified for me, my resolve to see the other two. And, and I think the jump in quality between that first film and this one that we're talking about today, um, is really profound. It's 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 a whole different movie, a whole different planet, if you will. <laughs> of the apes. <laughs> um yeah, I, I I agree. I agree. I think that this has uh uh I, I do remember being really taken aback because this has like the first 20 minutes are just no spoken dialogue. Just really sort of quiet and and you're, you're, you it lets you to a certain degree uh, become accustomed to the fact that the that the ape culture uses sign language and it just sort of comes across as not i i don't want to use the word alien here but it definitely feels mm-hmm. different uh and and it, it would it's really interesting to to also see that the if it had been some other, perhaps some other uh, attempt, or pe- perhaps even like ten years earlier, we would have had all those chimps making lots of noises and you know, like the stereotypical chimp noises, <laughs> so that people understand that yes, these are chimpanzees and blah blah blah. And you're like, N- this this actually works really well. Um, so yeah, and and it just sort of interesting uh, to see like. I don't know if you guys caught it, but there's like a tiny when they're doing the hunting scene, which let me say, let me say the, the, I don't know how realistic it is, but the, the, the breakiation of like a horde of apes just sort of swinging into (laughs) a a herd of deer looks so ominous. And so like that deer is going to die, you know, (laughs) um, so and uh the the what I wanted to point out is right before that there's two tiny musical stings. Uh I I think I recognized a, a couple of strains of like the Rite of Spring and also a tiny, tiny reference that sounds like the um the weird ululations in uh two thousand one when the apes touched the monolith. Yes, one thousand percent. I'm really glad that you brought it up. Like I it it's a a uh, little like kind of intricate, fun little moment that uh, that I had forgotten about until I revisited it this time. But yes, there is like absolutely that sort of uh, uh, atonal, like choral, ominous kind of wail that comes like from the monolith in 2001. And, you know, the, the introduction of that film, obviously, also uh, being uh, one that has actors uh, portraying apes, largely dialogue free um, in this sort of uh, pre-human society and community. Like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, certainly purposeful and, you know, it kind of sets up to, I think, no, no less than like Matt Reeves is, uh, 
grand ambitions with the picture that like all of his reference points here are these, uh, you know, sort of, uh, what are considered, I guess, you know, like cinematic royalty. <laughs> and and it's really the films that he's trying to emulate here. And and even in, you know, a, a summer blockbuster with uh, CGI, you know, motion capture uh, apes running around shooting machine guns on horses, like he's he's still trying to <laughs> to evoke your your memories of these these really important pieces of, of cinematic history. Yeah, but like the apes with the machine guns. That is badass, man. <laughs> I, I am not going to. Apes am, with machine guns and apes on horseback. Oh, yeah. Both of those are great, uh, honestly. And and both of them in the same scene. That is chef's kiss. Uh, Definitely agree. I I love the, the fact that you bring up the, um, you know, how relatively quiet the uh the first sort of 10 to 15 minutes of the movie are um and you know it does the job of sort of really uh bringing you in and sort of enveloping you and and of course creating tension but it also really gives you a chance to just marvel at the uh the technical aptitude on display whereas i feel like if they had you know mucked up the beginning with a lot of noise and uh you know just traffic of other kinds, um, you wouldn't have gotten the chance to really spend time admiring the apes and admiring um, just how beautiful the animation is. I do want to bring up one tiny ding here, though, right? Uh Uh-oh. We do have, we have the great apes are represented here. We have chimpanzees. We have gorillas that living together. We have an amazing, like an amazing looking orangutan. <laughs> yep. Where are the gibbons? There's no gibbon representation oh, here. There's folks. no gibbon representation. You're right. You're right. This is gibbon erasure. Um, <laughs> I am sorry. This has been canceled now. Sorry, folks. <laughs> No, I mean the the very online, uh, you know, pro Gibbon ape lobby uh, probably has indeed, you know, declared some sort of uh, some sort of fatwa on this particular film. It's 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 you know, pers- Matt Reeves is is persona non grata to those people. Absolutely, <laughs> like like he is he is, the no love lost here because of his uh, just uh, flippant erasure of of the Gibbons. So I I, I am with I am in solidarity with the Gibbons. it's a good shout Uh, out yeah no i mean i i i sort of sort of thought to myself well okay so i was like ticking them off in in my head as as they as the first scene opens and you're sort of immersed in the world i was like where's the gibbons (laughs) (laughs) have all the all the great apes but not the gibbons if nothing Uh, else i feel like that at least uh gives us a chance to maybe you know Snyder cut bully uh, Matt Reeves into making another one that's maybe exclusively Gibbons. Right. Yeah. Planet of the Gibbons. Yeah. Planet of the Apes and the Gibbons. <laughs> right. Right. Saving them for the uh, the inevitable sort of uh, side narrative and and uh, sister trilogy that will come, um, you know, courtesy of Disney now that they own 20th Century Fox. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining like Gibbons, what, what weapon would they wield? Hmm. That's uh, true. If, cause, cause if the chimpanzees are using spears, I feel like Gibbons might use like 
I don't know. Slings. Slings. Yeah, I was I was gonna say something more sort of like uh yeah, something that's more gymnastic. Mm, yeah, because I, I could just see them like cartwheeling and getting like maximum uh acceleration and then just right. letting loose up. <laughs> I'm very on board for this movie, yeah. guys, for the record. We're pitching it here right now. So, uh, Matt, Matt yeah. Reeves, if you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> please get in contact. He is stuck in the purgatory of uh, a never ending uh, Batman film production right now, I'm sure. <laughs> right. uh, who knows Look, when he, we'll see that one? He's, he's trying to convince Robert Pattinson not to hang dong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, think no, he's. Put the, he, Put the bat suit back on, Rob. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> back to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing I, I do want to shout out here, um, because it's it's uh, inseparable from from the quality of this film, is obviously just the the amazing work um, from from uh, Weta Workshop. You know who who was behind a lot of the. Uh, special effects in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, in in Peter Jackson's King Kong, obviously all all the Peter Jackson productions, and uh, remains uh, a force in digital uh, film technology and special effects development. Um, but specifically, like the actors who are doing the mocap work here, you know, um, Andy Serkis, I think, is obviously the best of them. Um, and is just like an unbelievable actor. Like he, he imbues this this creation of Caesar with so much pathos that it's like heartbreaking every time you see him on scene, but also like Toby Kebbell as Koba, uh, the oh. villain here, who's just like phenomenal. Um, and, and, uh, another f- fun one who's, uh, you know, kind of a, a maven of like a stunt and, and digital work in, in Hollywood who, but, uh, often gets maligned, I think, uh, is, uh, Terry Notari. I guess that's how you say his name. Maybe his last name's Notary. I don't know. It's spelled the same. Um, but there is a fun through line here that, uh, you know, Andy Serkis worked with Weta to portray Gollum, uh, Smeagol in, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He goes on to then do the mocap work for, uh, King Kong in Peter Jackson's King Kong. He comes to these films and works with Terry Notari. Uh, who is, you know, portraying uh, Rocket in this one and, and a couple of the other apes in, in some of the other films. Um, but now, now Terry Natari is portraying King Kong in the latest uh, iteration of his film. So he <laughs> he did the mocap work for Kong Skull Island. I don't know if he's going to if he's the one doing it in in Godzilla versus Kong as well. But cl- clearly there are only two actors who can <laughs> really effectively portray the the great Hollywood apes. And it's it's Andy Serkis and Terry Natari. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. I mean, uh, if if we could just keep Andy Serkis in 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 uh, business for a long time, I think he'll he'll be happy too. <laughs> yeah. uh, we will all be happy. We will be a better people for it. I think yeah. Con- consistently I mean, one of the best things about any movie that he's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, you're absolutely correct. I think that uh, Andy Serkis really uh, there's a, a certain and part of this is Weta, but obviously they're they're taking their cues off of his facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but he manages to imbue Caesar with like a melancholy and rage that is mm-hmm. always slightly below the surface of any of his expressions. That is great, um, and it doesn't really change until 
sort of the last act of this movie. Yeah, you nailed it. The that melancholy and rage is is precisely it. And similarly, Toby Kebble um with Koba does a really tremendous job with his face. There is something um the moment he first comes on screen, I'm endeared to Koba. Um he's and we can get into this uh outside of animation. Um he's He's a highly sympathetic villain in my, in my opinion. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with his sort of narrative arc and the things that are propulsing him. But I also think a lot of that has to, uh, a lot of that comes back to, um, the physicality of Toby Kebbell's, uh, portrayal of him. He, he too imbues Koba with, uh, a sadness, um, and, uh something that that also feels akin to melancholy um and if not rage at least a bitterness that's that's really sort of deep in his bones and we come to understand why over the course of the movie um but his his face in particular is one that is interesting because there's a lot you know, there's a lot of scarring on Koba's face, his animated face, um, which you would think would sort of get in the way of of uh, how emotive um, the animation is able to be. But he still somehow manages um, to just be heartbreaking, uh, you know, when you look at him. I, I think you touched upon the – so I, I did want to bring up that – on the one hand, um, part of the sympathy and sort of like the, the, uh, I suppose the tugging at the heartstrings, uh, that the character just visually engenders is because he's so scarred and mm-hmm. he's got, he does have sadly the stereotypical scar over the eye, which means that <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to be a bad guy. You're going right? to be a bad uh, guy. But, but, and this is the, the funny thing. Um, and I'm not sure if this was Kebbell's uh, acting, like his physicality, but he manages to hang like his lips are sort of always hanging open. Yes. So he also looks somewhat dim. And I don't mean that me in a mean way. It just sort of, that's just the way he's been hurt. And you understand that as the story progresses, his trauma and his past of being hor- horrifically abused and like he points to like his wounds that one time when you know uh Caesar's first um first has that uh closing or, or becoming close to the humans or at least let them through and he points to all his scars and this human you know this human and it it sort of it drives home if you didn't know it exactly where he's coming from and you realize you realize that this is just setting up like that's a emotion like it's supposed to tug on your emotions because you understand that he's been abused but it's also setting up sort of an ominous undertone that he may never be satisfied uh, because he's had such a bad time of it with humans yeah, and he, you know, his, his, th- I think the clarity in his worldview is, 
um, is one that might get lost on an audience because there's a lot of other stuff that we get thrown sort of at us to, to further villainize him um, further down the road. But at the end of the day, Koba's perspective is quite simple. It is that humans are bad, period. And if they have power, they will do what they always do, which is hurt everyone. They will kill us. They will, they will hurt everything around them in order to maintain their power. So, you know, his perspective is, is definitely one that I feel like is the most consistent um, of all the, you know, all the different sort of political threads uh, within the narrative. And, and, you know, with, with Caesar standing in contrast, Caesar is, um, for lack of a better phrase, like lib shit. <laughs> like he's, <laughs> he's just, you know, I, I like wrote down in my notes when we were watching it this last time, I was like, is Caesar lib shit? He kind of is. <laughs> um, because he really wants, you know, he wants unity. He wants peace. Um, and that's because he hasn't been traumatized to your point, the, the way that, um, Koba has. And so his perspective is definitely one of, uh, he's okay with capitulating. He's okay with compromising because he doesn't want, you know, more, more death and destruction. Similarly, Koba is trying to prevent that as well. He, he fears, you know, the amount of destruction that would come with humans gaining power again. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we don't have to get too much into the the politics of of the film, um, but you know because that's kind of what we do on our show. Uh, it's it's something that we can't really escape anymore. We've just been uh, you know con- conditioned to to always see them, and and part of it was you know when we were watching it this time uh, because this is the first time that I've really seen it since since I saw it um, in its theatrical runner, or I guess a few years ago. Um, but have have certainly been like more radicalized Lots in the years since then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but no, yeah. I mean, uh, just just quick note. Feel free to talk as much politics about it as you want, because <laughs> uh, yeah, we we come at this from a leftist perspective, or as close as we can get, right? And and I I am totally in agreement with Carly in this one. I I I do think that Caesar is hashtag not all humans. <laughs> right, that is exactly but, what he does. That's totally <laughs> what he is. But, oh, that's even were, better. But but Aaron, you were going to say. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that's okay. I, I appreciate uh, you know granting us the the permission to to go down this uh, this avenue. So, um, yeah, you know, and and maybe I'm the only one here who has actually seen the the first of the trilogy, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. But that film, uh, you know, spoiler alert, culminates in this uh, big showdown between the newly freed apes uh, and SFPD on the Golden Gate Bridge. And Caesar is able to like lead this army across the bridge into the Marin headlands and like uh, face off against the cops. Uh, pretty minimal casualties because he still obviously has like a very soft spot for humanity and doesn't want uh, to, to kill unnecessarily. Um, but, you know, they, they kind of liberate themselves. And so this movie you know, you is, is kind of living in that weird sort of fading afterglow, like after the moment of revolution. And it's the moment where like, they have an opportunity to like build something in a new image. Um, you know, it's sort of, that's, uh, kind of fantastical, like, uh, 
pre-utopian sort of society that we talk about after the struggle. And, uh, you know, Koba is coming at it from like a very inflexible, like really, uh, principled position that, you know, like that, that, that the people that Caesar is trying to help are the oppressors that, that given, you know, their, their druthers and, and, and full capacity like that they once had, all that they will attempt to do is restore the order that they put in place before. Um, and so like, I, I totally do like beyond just like the sympathy of Koba being like this, like broken, uh, broken ape, you know, and this, this character who like through no fault of his own has been like battered and abused into like rage and anger. You, you almost, yeah, you, you, you do see his point, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's a part of him, you know, like hashtag, you know, like Koba was right or whatever. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like, uh, and, and, you know, Caesar's like flexibility or, or his willingness, like we said, to capitulate is, is something that's so fascinating to watch happen because you you do kind of empathize with the position because you do want to see you know some level of of unity some level of cooperation but at the same time you realize too just how how uh how undermining those decisions are to his ultimate project of creating the sustained uh utopia and 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 safe life for all the apes so i i want to jump ahead real quick because i think I I agree with you. I agree that, uh, you know, hashtag Koba did nothing wrong. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it it's sort of presented to you in the context of the ape culture that they're trying to build, mm -hmm. which still is sort of like weirdly hand in hand with uh, the, the, the ape hierarchies that exist, you know, the social hierarchies that exist pre, I guess, uh, enlightenment or what, what have you, right. Mm -hmm. Before they became intelligent, mm -hmm. um, they haven't shed the idea that that was, they can make something new and they're trying, it seems like they're trying to do that, but not perhaps as fast as they need to. Um, but at the end of the, uh, at the end of the movie, it does seem for all of Koba's villainized and Koba is definitely, uh, a, a driving force of the conflict that occurs, he is actually proven right because at the end, Caesar has to, has to basically grudgingly admit that the war's already started. You got to go mm -hmm. and we can't protect you. So I like you, but I can't speak for anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not to give too much away um, in terms of the third installment in the trilogy, because it's definitely worth your time and really fun. And, and you know, Matt Reeves is, is you know, shouting out 2001 in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. He shouts out uh, Apocalypse Now in, in oh. War for the Planet of the Apes. So there's there's like oh, yeah. a whole like journey down river into the depths of, of the soul kind of narrative <laughs> for like half of that film. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. And and yeah, you know, the the third film in the trilogy very much informs Koba's philosophy and his worldview, which is that um, at a certain point, like the, the humans have amassed basically all of their military strength and aren't uh, aren't satisfied with simply just coexisting and aren't satisfied with simply just like surviving and rebuilding like they actually have this um have this prejudice against the apes because they blame them largely for, for the, the horrible, you know, uh, 
caustic, you know, the damage to society that's, that's befallen them because of the simian flu. Um, so, so not only do they want to like restore order and gain power again, but they actually want to just completely snuff out the apes. Um, so it, yeah, the, the third film in the trilogy completely proves, uh, Koba's, Koba's worldview, his position, his politics, uh, completely correct. The humans in the third film are ostensibly all operating from Carter's ideology in this movie. Carter is, you know, representative of that, that conservative point of view that one, just like doesn't believe in science and two, um, does not see that it's actually humans that created the finger quote simian flu with their sort of meddling, uh, meddling with nature and it's always like an alzheimer's cure gone awry right i feel like in every (laughs) in every movie that's what it is um and so his perspective is is absolutely one that um you know koba quite accurately applies to all humans which is that they um he doesn't believe that uh it was their fault. He believes it was Ape's fault and that they're the reason for all of this death and destruction and that they are animals and nothing more and should be dealt with accordingly. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is sort of sad. And also, um, I think kind of fulfilling that Koba does end up being correct in his, his read on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, to, to flash forward ahead a little bit, this is sort of even a better, uh, sort of like a better conflict, uh, than we see in a similar, uh, movie, which is, you know, Killmonger versus T'Challa. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Where Killmonger is absolutely correct. Um, uh, sure. You know, it's, uh, he, I, I did, I did, uh, did see him say like, well, he wanted to make sure that, you know, that, uh, arm everyone. And then Wakanda will be on top. It was like, okay, maybe, maybe someone else gets a turn at it. It's, <laughs> it is, it is imperialist, but sometimes you're like, eh, it's a movie. Yep. <laughs> this is a revolution. And I'm, I'd like to see that. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, in this case, it's weird because Koba is proven more correct than Killmonger is. Agreed. Uh, to a certain extent, Killmonger's message is blunted and sort of placed in a weird neolib neoliberal rapper that like, oh, we just need more sort of charter schools. <laughs> in the nice place in the nasty places to to bring these people up. And you're like, uh that's that's a yikes, folks. That's a yikes. <laughs> that's a big time yikes. Yeah, you know, it and it's funny too, because like one of the things that I was coming to when we were watching this film this time is is the realization that uh this film released in 2014 War for the Planet of the Apes, its sequel and the final part of the trilogy in 2017. Something very big happened between those two in terms of American politics. And, uh, and, oh, and you don't say. Yeah. What happened? I, what now? Well, I'll, I'll let you guess. Um, but, uh, <laughs> in, in the third film, like it, there is definitely sort of a, a softening of some of the more revolutionary, more, uh, uh, oppositional, 
kind of ideas and, and philosophies of Dawn, um, where, you know, again, not to give too much away because watch the movie. It's really great. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's actually not that much fun. It's kind of dour, but it's, but it's, but it's a good movie. (laughs) Um, and you know, like, like all of this stuff comes to this head where it, 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 it still ends in this, yeah, very, very, uh, neoliberal minded kind of place where like, Oh, you know, revenge is bad and violence is bad. And like, what we need to do is like work towards like work towards a peace and a sense of community. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's just sort of instinctually and preternaturally afraid of conflict, which is, I think a thing that, that this film, uh, also kind of is, but, but eventually rewards us with the conflict um, however it gets there, you know, part of the tension that's sustained throughout the first half of the film is like waiting for all of it to eventually unravel and, and break. And it, and it does. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's, it's just funny, you know, you can very much see the ideology of, of Matt Reeves and the screenwriters here, um, uh, Mark Bomback and, and I think it's, uh, Rick Silver and Amanda Jaffa as well, but yeah. they, uh, you know, they, they, they very clearly, lean you know sort of like just left of center enough to know that like what we really want is peaceful resolution of our conflicts um even when we can't necessarily get there right now like that's still the ultimate goal and and they do a lot to vilify koba beyond just his his uh sort of you know rigidity and and his his lack of willing to compromise with the humans to the point of making him actually like murderous and selfish and uh and and violent towards his own kind like there's even like the 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 line at the end that caesar has when they confront one another on on the this tower um and sort of like the climactic final battle where koba insists and says like you know uh, koba koba fights for apes and and caesar fights for humans and caesar kind of corrects him and says no koba fights for koba and so you know it 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 it's has to reframe koba's uh anger as as a way of of satisfying himself first and foremost in order for us to like see him as the villain it's all like very classical red scare rhetoric just painted over you know um it's like that conflation of the far left and the far right that often happens um from the center and it's it's even as explicit as the references the political reference, the political and historical references within Koba himself. He is named Koba, which uh, it was a, a nom de guerre. I'm saying that wrong. A nom de guerre of Stalin. And um, similarly, one of the inciting incidents for the war is um, a fire that he sets uh, on the sort of ape commune. And that is referencing the Reichstag. I'm also saying that incorrectly. It's pretty close. Reichstag, Reichstag fire. Fire of 1933 that that um, Hitler famously uh, set ablaze. So, so even in the figure of Koba himself, there is this confusion of you know far left, far right, and sort of where he sits, um, where he sits in that, and that confusion is very. It's. Uh, you know, it's the same. It's the same confusion we see um, deployed strategically, often in popular culture and in media. I, I absolutely uh, was completely off put. I was totally bristling at the the Koba fight for Koba. Um, just you know, 
nudge well, that they threw in there because that just <laughs> felt disingenuous to that character. It felt, um, it really felt like they were doing a lot at the end, you know, he's sort of tossing apes off balconies and shit. And it's like, okay, I don't, that's not what he's here for. But, but it did also reveal the politics of the creators quite clearly. Yeah. I mean, um, on, on the one hand, uh, Koba couldn't get himself a helicopter to throw people out of. So, uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> right. Very true. Uh, but um, I I also so in that sense I, I I totally see what you're saying and I agree with you that there is a little bit of a conflation between like communists and fascists they're the same thing you're like right. no 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 the same, the same thing <laughs> but like you know but at the same time again Koba is correct like think of all like let's put it this way. Juan Guaido, <laughs> if the communists or the socialists are so, so bad, how is it that Juan Guaido, who was at the head or the figurehead of a coup on a socialist country, is able to walk in and out of that country? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, I mean, think of the problems that uh, a lot of the revolutions would have, especially in a non- uh, non-unified world right so you have a polar opposite in this case it's the humans right so if you leave humans around they are going to eventually hurt you Mm -hmm. so if anyone professes any type of affinity towards them if you are thinking that violent revolution is necessary uh then you need to sort of deal with that I don't think I agree with Koba's methods in this, but you do have to deal with it. Uh, Caesar deals with it at the end. And it's sort of funny because we're talking about like these apes that have sort of a, a achieved a humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And do, do we want to jump ahead and, and just talk about that for a second? Yeah. yeah go for I it. love where you're going with this. Because the thing that caesar does is what a government needs to do like a governing body or a state needs to do to cast out a a member of its body politic is to unperson them Hmm. that's the last thing he says to koba is you not ape Mm -hmm. and granted i mean i'll I'll say this in caesar's defense he did get shot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and fell several feet, several several dozens of feet uh, to his almost his death um, by Koba, and Koba sort of it drove all this conflict that he didn't, he wasn't really ready or willing to really in, get in, involved with, and sort of uh, causes all the escalation. But we t- like I still can't help but side with Koba on this because. The minute the minute they're even prodded a little bit, uh, the human the humans under Gary Oldman um, Gary Oldman's character who is and I forgot his name uh, Dreyfus uh, I think is his name. He's the same guy from Batman Begins. <laughs> yeah, he's just yes. Jim Gordon. He's Jim Gordon. Post apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, and the the minute he's prodded, he's like, "Yeah, we're gonna just blow everything up. Fuck him." And you're like, "What? <laughs> what? <laughs> huh?" <laughs> How, how do you go from zero to that? Yeah, we got C4 all through this, and you're like, what? <laughs> right. 
I I completely agree with you. I think it's a it's a really good point. Despite the um you know the some of the confused politics of of maybe some of the creative minds behind the movie, the the politics of Koba as you said are still crystal clear and and really unfaltering. Um and I do end up on the side of him um because uh you know the keeping in line with the original movies this this movie too is profoundly anti-human. Um, it's not sitting here saying like everyone is you know this heart of gold that that this family happens to be. Um, we mostly just see the bad sides of the humans in this movie, and um, and I like I like it for that reason that it doesn't necessarily pull punches in that regard. Yeah, yeah there's. Um- one other, you know, scene near the end of this film that, that this is recalling for me and making me think about. And it's one that I, I so often just kind of, uh, you know, dismissed as, as a little bit more of like the, the kind of cliche stuff in the film. You know, it's, it's interesting that apes are just learning to talk, but they already operate in, in a lot of these, uh, sort of cliches, <laughs> you know, but, but they learn them nonetheless, you know, even independent, like humans teaching them. And, uh, it's the scene where Caesar's like wounded and healing back at his home in San Francisco and his son blue eyes comes to visit him and they're speaking one night and, and Caesar says, um, you know, I, I used to think that it was as simple as ape, good human, bad. And now I see just how much like them we really are. And like it, it, it felt fine previously, but on this watch, I was like, no, dude, like that's you, that's your fault. Like you are the one, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? How much you're like these humans? Like you're the one who's perpetuating like, like these, these, uh, norms of like a, of a, of a different society. Right. And, and, you know, there's, there's this kind of interesting, like lingering sort of dark fatalism in this apes trilogy and also in like, you know, the original apes movies, which is that, you know, the, the corrosive and corrupting factor in the society that, that creates the sort of caste system and these hierarchies and perpetuates, you know, this, this violence and, and all of these impulses all comes from like the germinating of what is like a fundamentally human thing, right? It's, it's all because they're so uh, fixated on rebuilding a society that feels like a society that they knew before. And so there's like part of, you know, just like a thread of something. And this is, this is, you know, not fully theorized and I'm just like kind of pulling this out of my ass right now, but you know, but uh, you know, there, uh, what I can't help but think is like, you know, the, one, one of the, the, the fundamental, uh, you know, failing factors of this like new ape society is the fact that Caesar is unwilling to imagine something different than what he knew and what he was raised with. Like he, all of his politics, all of his sympathies, all of his allegiances and the way he governs are all informed by the human world that he knew before. And what he seems to forget is that in that human world, he was an underclass of, of person. He was, you know, a, a step above a pet, but not quite a human. He was oppressed. He was locked up when he got to, uh, too violent or too smart for for his keepers, and he seems like yeah, unwilling to like fully cast aside the notion that there was anything wrong with that society, and that the new thing that they make has to be something completely different from it. Yeah, libshit. Right. Yeah, I mean, but 
but it's I think that you're absolutely right in that sense. It, it's probably not intentional, but they do total totally put it in, in like wrap it up in a little bow by having him when he's at his most wounded and whatnot. He only thinks about like they don't go to a safe place like a fortified area or the hell away from the city. He stops in the outskirts of the city at his old house where he was mm-hmm. kept. Mm-hmm. And that sort of sets up like that's the thin border between, you know, the, the end of the second and the beginning of the third act um, where he has to lay up there and, and recover uh, perhaps a little less time than I think is necessary for a gunshot wound. But, <laughs> Two uh, days. Yeah, just a Two couple days. Two days doesn't cut it. <laughs> like, like a day, a day and a half or something like that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not a lot. Um, but you know, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a pass because a, a lot of these movies all have that same logic. It's like, it all happens in a day and you're like, what? <laughs> the compressed timeline for healing in these, in these movies is very real. Totally. Yeah. One thing I do want to point out before we move on, um, because we're talking about the city, uh, this film, as I recall, came out in the same summer as uh, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film, the one that has now spawned uh, multiple sequels and a crossover with Godzilla with uh, King Kong, you know, forthcoming. Uh, And both of them take place, at least in part, uh, in San Francisco, like the big climax of that Godzilla film was in San Francisco. But it's clearly Vancouver and not San Francisco. <laughs> and this film actually was shot on location in SF, um, you know, and and they they definitely took, uh, you know, actual footage of the city and then, you know, just just digitally enhanced them and produced this kind of post-apocalyptic patina over over actual footage. And, um, you know, we're, we, we are Bay Area based. We live here in San Francisco and watching this movie compared to Godzilla, both in a theater in the middle of, of San Francisco. I was like, one of these feels really authentic. One of these feels like the places I walk by every day. And one of these is clearly Vancouver. Like, they, like <laughs> yeah. Godzilla it doesn't even get like the color of the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Like it's like almost kind of like a brick red, which it totally <laughs> isn't. Um, and maybe part of it is like the color timing in the movie, but, but it's, it's so obvious obviously like like not san francisco and it's just like one of the charming things about these films is like recognizing specific street corners and spaces um that you know that that i i have been down yeah well i i, I was gonna ask you because this definitely feels much more rainy it it, fe- it felt a lot more sort of drearily uh overcast and i was thinking is is this the pacific northwest or <laughs> Did I, I get this wrong? I, th- I thought I saw the, the the Golden Gate Bridge, but maybe I'm wrong. It definitely feels very Seattle. You're right. There's a there's a lot of a lot of precipitation. I I I think I remember reading or maybe hearing an interview with Matt Reeves where he had a very specific vision that the rain. Um, you know, he really wanted the the rain there for. Um, for mood, yes, but also to um, to like have this idea that you know you could see the sort of again if we're marveling at the the technical aptitude of of some of the creatives behind this film, the wet fur in this movie is, I mean, not to sound hyperbolic, it's breathtaking, mm-hmm. um, and and so I think he had a lot in mind with um, you know rain being there and sort of. Uh, 
the the sound of uh, the soundscape of rain being uh, part of part of the mood. But it we we were we were in a drought for like eight years, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We we definitely don't have that much moisture. But there is yeah. something I can say as a person who who's lived here my whole life. There is something that for me. Um, was additive um, in a good way in terms of the movie having sort of like emotional heft and and um, and even to use your your word again melancholy um, seeing these uh, street corners and seeing these buildings um, and knowing that they've got the distance right like I knew they were not on a set by the way that I could you know that I saw market um, as it was related to. Uh, the Transamerica building. And there's something, um, there's something really sad and ominous about seeing this place that is, um, so vibrant and has so much energy, um, and seeing it very realistically portrayed, um, you know, in a post-apocalypse, post-apocalyptic setting. And it also, I couldn't help but feel this way, um, it also just made me think of how San Francisco feels now, um, which, you know, again, not to sound hyperbolic, but it it feels kind of the same as it does in in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And uh, I just I couldn't help but make that connection. There's a lot of, you know, abandoned streets and overgrowth. And um, yeah, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I. To be fair, I I immediately filed out the the sort of like oh it's really raining. I was like oh it's been ten years. Maybe the weather patterns have sort of gone <laughs> gone back or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I I did want to touch ba- touch really quickly on the the turning point for Koba, which oh man that's that scene like the setup of the scene and then the payoff with the next scene is just so great where he he. It happens upon he goes to investigate because this is where the the the, the chimps with guns uh, <laughs> clips come from. Uh, he goes to investigate because uh, we we learn from Dreyfus that they have like a whole shitload of uh, weaponry, just sort of like cached up in in a certain area of the of the city. And uh, Koba, after uh, Caesar see it hardens his heart against him regarding like sending the humans away or not not letting them through because the whole point is that they want to uh, turn on a dam uh, for hydroelectric and bring the the lights back on in the city. And uh is correct again, that uh, if they get power that, you know, this will create an imbalance. Uh, so he goes down and he investigates to see if he has web, if they have weapons and sure enough, he meets two dumbasses that are just, you know, uh, target, you know, doing target practice and the, physical performance there is one that you immediately recognize. Oh, he's code switching. Mm-hmm. Yes. He is 1000% code switching minstreling to be exact. Yes. Yeah. There's, yes. there's like all clapping. sorts of parallels there to, yeah, to all this sort of, uh, you know, underclass or, or there are definitely like racial, uh, you know, undertones to this, just this idea of the, the performance and the minstreldom. Yeah. To, to, have these people immediately underestimate him and, and his capacity. It's, it's wild. Well, cause his it's existence so is, you know, if we sort of look at this in the context of America's racial landscape, his, his mere existence is a threat, right. 
to to the perspective of these humans. Um, and so that code switching, that that minstrel, um, that minstreling is um, is there to uh, ameliorate the tension and the threat that they may be feeling. But but the thing I love about that scene, I'm really glad that you brought it up, Carlo, because um, the the physicality of of Toby Kebbell's performance is um, is tremendous. Again, there is a sadness to that performance. Um, that I think, uh, makes it hit even harder than just the fact that it's happening to begin with and you, you understand it's, um, it's allegories. But, um, but I think to your point of, of the payoff then of, of what happens afterward, um, it really is this spark in the middle of the movie. It just kind of goes off, uh, with, um, with a lot of explosive energy. Um, and it doesn't come from the fact that he ends up killing these people. Um, I think it comes from, you know, the, the pain that comes before when he has to sort of debase himself and that he knows enough to do that in order to, um, to relieve them of, of their fear that they may have. To disarm them, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, literally and, and metaphorically, because he 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 does he does what I was referring to earlier. He does that whole like these are chimp sounds, you know. And he does the 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 weird little hoots and gasps and whatnot, and claps his hands and and rolls and and just it's it's fascinating to watch because it's so it's a physical performance that immediately sort of hits several things at once for me. Like I know, I realize. Oh, oh, this is where he came from. Mm. This is this is where his abuse comes from. He knew enough, like like you said, Carly. He knew enough to immediately adopt a persona that will, in fact, make sure that they're sort of off guard. Mm -hmm. Precisely, they're, they're wary, but they're not. They're not, they're, they're willing to let him in a little bit and they're like, ah, look at this dumbass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that sequence is heartbreaking and, and, uh, and completely arresting. Yeah. As, as soon as, you know, like he, he would, when he returns to the, to Fort Mason the second time, um, and, and, you know, begins in that sort of like playful, uh, you know, performative kind of way where he's doing the cartwheels and the raspberries and, and, you know, drinking the, the, uh, you know, blue label scotch and, and spitting it back out at them to like, kind of, yeah, like you said, disarm them. Um, like, you know, what's coming already, you know, that the resolution yeah. has already been, been made. Like, like he's already decided in his head, what's going to happen next and you're just waiting for it. And so like, you know, when, when the gun changes hands and, and he, you know, kind of swipes it from one of these guys at, at the weapons cache, you know, your, your heart skips a beat a little bit. You kind of hold your breath. And then when the gun finally goes off, it's like, yeah, it, it, like Carly said, it's, it's this sort of like firecracker in the middle of the entire narrative. And, and so much of the tension is released, but also just like driven even further past a breaking point, um, in terms of your watch. And yeah, I mean, it's so, so much of like the first half of the film, I think, uh, you know, the whole thing is, is, terrific but i think that so much of the the reward of the film is in that first like hour first hour and you know change uh before 
Koba pulls the trigger and just how good they are at manipulating that tension and sustaining it and, and waiting for violence to finally break out that it, it feels yeah. really earned by the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's the thing. I think that it, it, the first scene provides like that dramatic tension that the second scene, you're just like vibrating by then you're like, <laughs> oh shit. And, and it's like, it, it is a complete dramatic irony moment, right? Because you know, what's going to happen. You absolutely know what the outcome of this scene is. You're not sure of the particulars, but you know that these two guys are going to die. And it's, it's sort of brilliantly sort of contrasted by the fact that he is acting really like even sillier than the first time. Mm-hmm. And the sillier he gets, the more unsettled I got. I don't yes. know about you guys. Yes. You nailed it. That's, that's, (laughs) um, that is one of the, the most beautiful parts of that scene is just how unsettling it all is. Um, and you can't, you also can't help, but then, you know, think about the, the, the real world proxies. Um, and it makes that scene even more unsettling, um, particularly as we think about, you know, the landscape of the last year and, uh, and just, Black death pervading um, the conversation in a way that it hasn't since the early 90s, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think watching this this movie post, uh, you know, the tumult of last summer and the discourse that's ensued since then, um, I think the last time I had seen this movie was maybe five or six years ago. Um, so certainly didn't have uh, that much resonance, but... I I found that scene even more sort of disturbing and unsettling just thinking about, you know, the the sort of uh, allegories that that has with uh, interactions with police and communities of color, which, you know, we certainly don't need to get into. But I think that's one of the, the reasons that I actually found myself more sort of um, just unsettled and and vibrating as you said with that particular scene yeah i mean and and the funny thing is that i I kept on debating myself as i was watching this because i i was i was worried before i started that somehow you know it's the old sci-fi thing right where oh it's not black people it's robots or aliens (laughs) or whatever or you know it's not it's not latinos it's it's uh it's weird to you know like Gleep gloop people. And you're like, no. <laughs> the problem and, and the problem with that is that obviously at the at, at the end of it all, we know if it's badly done, we know exactly what you're trying to do. It's sort of a silly thing. Um at 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 worst it's that, and at best it's like, well, okay, that was great. Uh, but you know, wow, that robot, so sorry for him, and no one makes the connection. Right. And so the thing here is that as I approached the movie, I was thinking to myself, well, okay, are they going to try to like make the, uh, the apes into some sort of allegory for some sort of race? And thankfully, and, and I might be wrong, but thankfully I didn't notice that very much. There is that line where uh, we we talked about before where it it reads a little bit like ape on ape violence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I don't think honestly I don't think that that was the uh, I, that is a bad faith reading on my part, I feel. 
because I don't think that that's what the what the script was calling for, and we only know it now mainly because the context of our reality outside of that movie has changed. Totally agree with you. It's absolutely the audience sort of uh, bringing that baggage with them, and not at all um, present in the text itself. I completely agree with you that that um, that it does a really graceful job of navigating that space um, really thoughtfully and avoids a lot of the pitfalls that you reference that we see in so many, so many of these types of movies that are about race, but aren't, or, you know, about the cold war, but are not right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think the other thing too, that I brought with, you know, to the movie that the movie was not telling me to, in uh, into it in any way um, is all of this sort of historical baggage that we have around uh, like phrenology and, and, you know, sort of justifications that we have for oppression of certain people. Um, that again is not, uh, is not in the text. And I found myself, um, you know, kind of bringing that with me and then realizing like, Oh, that's, that's, that's not in the movie. That's not happening here. That's that's my sort of, you know, socialized perspective um, watching the film. Totally. And, you know, I this is one of those few moments, I think, in terms of, of these films as, as you know, uh, you know, kind of flattening any sort of, of allegory that may have been present, you know, in terms of like the civil rights movement and in, in that was, you know, occurring during the the conception of of the original Planets of the Apes and and its subsequent sequels, this this is one of those moments where I feel like the general sort of ambivalence of the Obama era was actually kind of rewarding in terms <laughs> of the text because it's like, uh, you know, it, we 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 probably could not make a film that wouldn't be just beating us over the head with its with its uh, sort of like racial uh, analogs. Uh, in terms of like a, an apes movie right now today, but, but in mm-hmm. 2011, in 2014, I think that there was a certain kind of, like I said, flat flattening of, of society and culture at large and everything felt, I think a little bit, a little bit better, you know, there, there was this kind of like apathy uh, or, or towards uh, or, or a willingness to like, not even acknowledge, you know, some of like the greater evils of society, like the left was a little bit less vocal um, and, and this sort of, you know, kind of Obama era liberal ideology sort of reigned supreme. And so like, I think that comfort for most people within the, the media sphere and within Hollywood actually yielded something that thankfully uh, kind of, distances itself from a, a direct like one-to-one sort of uh symbolism or interpretation so i guess um that that's that's really interesting because I, as you were thinking about it i was thinking about like yeah because honestly you know by by the time i mean that was the collective sigh of relief you know we had our first black president uh you know um i don't want to diminish it but it, it, you know, it, the joke is right. You know, racism was over, right? So that's <laughs> that's what the joke is. I mean, it it that was the sentiment that was felt, and it was felt somewhat sincerely by a lot of people, even though, uh, the, you know, none of the problems had gone away. Uh, so you know, I I can't speak for anyone who who uh thought differently because I. I got to admit, I was taken in by it as well. You, it's a, it's a big. It felt like a big moment, um, and it was before you know. Uh, I guess here in 2014, uh, 
we'd already received some of the indications that there's some bigger disappointments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, overall, it's still a good time. You know, things are good. <laughs> you know, he's, he's obviously going to be in for another, you know, it, as the as the movie says, a third term, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the 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 funny thing here is that I think you're absolutely correct that that feeling of we made it uh, then lets this movie sort of be their chimps. You know, they're not mm-hmm. analogs for humans. Th- there's a these are which is which is actually paradoxical because because of that they are granted a sort of dignity that humanity generally gets on screen Mm -hmm. and we haven't even talked about like the 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 human family because they are not relevant to this story (laughs) they're absolutely not not. i mean they're they're ancillary to caesar and coba's struggle um, because this is a story that is focused on the apes. It is, it is like, the more I think about it, the more I feel like this is an amazing display of how you can do storytelling and shift a narrative so deftly that it, it, I mean, to be honest with you, I, 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 I looked up some reviews and, and there were some complaints. Oh, we don't get to you know see what the family is like and the humans. And it's like, because it's not about them. Yeah, absolutely. We get this is honestly the more you know, like I, I, if I think about it more and more, the more I feel that that in and of itself is somewhat revolutionary in its viewpoint. Because how many stories do we get that are honestly from the viewpoint of an oppressed mm-hmm. society? And it's sort of just completely like everything else, like all the other, the oppressors are on the periphery of it. Even the nice ones. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, It is pretty singular in that regard. Um, And quite, and quite revolutionary. I wonder too, since, you know, we're talking about this, this um, and the movie being, being revolutionary. Um, I guess my last question to to you, Carlo, or to both of you is, you know, as a revolutionary text, as a, a, you know, a means by which this kind of abstract rebellious animus that we may have um, can be, uh, you know, explored and and um and given an outlet to a certain degree do you feel like this movie does that do you feel like um this is a a a sort of revolutionary tale in that regard or um does it does it come up short uh i'm gonna say it comes up a little short um we do get i mean let's not let's not say that that's a bad thing necessarily because we do get that awesome. I mean, this is amazing, an amazing battle where the apes actually storm the seat of power and take it over mm-hmm. like with like armed struggle. And uh, look, if anyone's going to get squeamish about this and think that we're talking about one six or some sh- bullshit like that, <laughs> no. <laughs> fuck off. Appreciate the caveat. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
come on. Yeah, I just I just want to say, I mean, even that, like you you do know, and we both know people that, that have sort of like muttered under their breath, going like, "Well, I wish the lefties would have done that or <laughs> something similar." <laughs> right? I mean, I get it. Uh, there is something to it, uh, and we do get that image here. It is it is completely amazing. It's a great set piece, a great action sequence, like. Uh, I love the part where Koba just like jumps into the APC and just takes it over. I was wondering how, how he was driving the thing, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just so cool. Um, and, and of course the dual wielding of uh, two machine guns on mm-hmm. horseback. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. Give me some more of that. Just put that right <laughs> in my veins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the end of it all, you know, like they, they do need to put the genie back in the bottle and they manage mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, by completely vilifying and then unpersoning Koba. Uh, so, I mean, on the one hand, you do get that awesome scene. On the other, the the counter-revolution and the reestablishment of, I, I do want to say it's not a status quo. So I'll, 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 hmm. I'll stop there. It is similar to the status quo, mm-hmm. but it is now a moving target because- that's the, how it, it ends. I mean, it ends with a, a note of pessimism on the part of Caesar where he's like, you guys got to go. I, I can't, you guys got to go. This, the, I didn't want war. I know you didn't either. I like you just fine. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I think Carlo, you're 100% correct. And, you know, one of the things that we always come back to on, on our show is, uh, you know, this, this idea that however revolutionary and however sort of, uh, uh, how, however willing a, a filmmaker or an artist or a, a movie specifically in the nineties, you know, but, but even today, however willing creators are to like show these sort of countervailing ideologies and, and, you know, these sort of differences of, of opinion, it all inevitably just comes back to reinforcing and like manufacturing this consent for the status quo or for like the middle ground. Uh, and, and it like, it's just, it's just what happens in, in Hollywood cinema, you know, especially of, of this ilk, like, like you said, you know, uh, you know, Killmonger, uh, also was, was right in black Panther. And it's a movie that just like is, is totally not willing to acknowledge like, the revolutionary underpinnings of that character and satisfies itself with, like you said, like building more charter schools. Like that is the literal ending <laughs> yeah. of black Panther is, is, you know, Chadwick deciding, Oh, we're going to build more charters. We're going to build more charter schools. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is a text that, that seems interested in offering any sort of alternative to that ideology. I think all it does is, is in fact sort of vilifies um, the, the extremity, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and just kind of rigidity of that thing, you know, it, it falls very, very firmly in line with a lot of these kinds of texts that just always say compromise is important. Like a willingness to try to find a middle ground is important. Um, you know, we were waxing and, and, you know, through, through our nausea talking about that, that Bruce Springsteen ad from the Super Bowl, uh, (laughs) about the middle, right? Like, you know, like, oh, you know, like, like the middle is the most satisfying place to be. Like we need to come together. We need to find this space, not acknowledging in any way that like these, these two positions are diametrically opposed to one another. Um, and, and this film can't find a satisfying way to reconcile it either because we do like, 
just sort of intrinsically empathize with the humans because we are humans and we want to see them like at least survive, you know, or, or, you know, and, and peacefully coexist with, with the apes in some way and not be evil and not be militaristic and imperial. Um, but there's also this, this acknowledgement within the film that that's just like not really possible. Um, just despite all of its sort of gestures and, and genuflecting towards this idea that it's what's necessary, um, even if it's out of reach at the moment. Right. Right. I mean, and, and that's, th- that is obviously the lure, right. Of incrementalism. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, well, well, we got it a little closer. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have so many mixed feelings about that because uh, I, I mean, the, the, I want this and I do think that this ha- has its revolutionary aspect is in in fact, centering the apes who have mm-hmm. been oppressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does have that brilliant set piece and action sequence where they they do storm the seat of power. Uh, they are rebuffed uh, because of internal strife. Um, but but it is it is a a fantastic scene. But at the end, it does have like that that moment where uh, we gotta we gotta rein it back. Uh, you know, uh, I wanted peace, but you know, this is what I got. And, uh, that being said, um, and, and the, the, the lure of the middle, uh, have you guys seen the, the original Karate Kid? Yes. Miyagi had the wisdom. You can't stand on one side of the road. If you stand in the middle of the road, you get squished like a grape. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He's correct. I mean, the, correct. the grip of capitalist realism is mighty and far-reaching, right? So for for all of the revolutionary animus that this movie has, um, it still is, uh, you know, being made in a, a system of corporate media um, run by people who um, I'm I'm presuming. Uh, can't necessarily imagine a world beyond the one that we live in, and so it will I mean, it will always fall short in that regard. I think, but I mean, that's I, maybe I me being too too bleak about it. Um, no, I I agree with you, and I think that it's reflected in Caesar. Like mm-hmm. we've been we've been talking about this for you know an hour plus, but Caesar just cannot imagine what the future, what an actual changed future that is not anchored to a past um, would look like. And he himself is afraid. Uh, He doesn't demonstrate it and he doesn't act upon it, but his lack of action, his uh, equivocation on certain basic decisions on what is best for his people is what sort of paralyzes him and Mm -hmm. keeps him in a present that is at best, you know, like sustainable for, you know, for a little while. Totally. It's, um, and, and, you know, I know we're, we're kind of past point, but I I did want to bring up this thing that I was thinking about when you said that Carlo, um, I, I, I'm going to spoil one thing from the third film, um, and also refer back to one thing in, in the first film rise. Um, this, this series kind of functions 
in terms of its like proximity to the original films as sort of like a, a prequel trilogy, right? Like it's, it's supposed to be independent from that, but in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, there is like a brief sort of fan servicey cutaway to a television set uh, where they are showing the launch of the Icarus, the, uh, <laughs> the spacecraft that Charlton Heston is on that eventually comes back to Earth sometime in the future um, when apes have taken over. So, so we know that like that particular uh, group of people and, and those characters do exist in this universe. And then in uh, War for the Planet of the Apes in the third film, the virus, the simian flu is mutating um, and and killing people again and also um, uh, rendering them mute. So like after they get the the, the sickness, they can no longer speak, which uh, again is. Yeah. So it's so it's kind of, you know, recalling and referencing this point somewhere down the line in which uh, humans are are mute and incapable of speech for that reason. Mm-hmm. So like if there's one thing that the film, I think, and, and the film series does that I find really fascinating um, and to steal a word revolutionary in terms of what it's saying is, is, you know, going back to this idea that it, it has this sort of tragic fatalism to it where even, mm-hmm. even at the resolution of the, of the third film, we, we know if we're, if we're really thinking about it and if we're really analyzing it as a prequel that, Regardless of the momentary victories and triumphs or regardless of the setbacks, eventually these apes do create a society with the hierarchies and castes that are almost identical to those of the humans. And they've, they've rebuilt this society in their image. And, you know, it, at, at the point of its destruction, uh, it will just repeat, you know, ad, ad infinitum, you know, like it, it's, it's this never ending loop and cycle of, of uh devolution and evolution and and destruction and uh yeah it, it's it's a thing that granted the the i know the film is not trying to uh like pontificate on or 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 suggest but it is sort of there in the text if you look for it for a moment and i find it yeah really fascinating that there's that just kind of like uh inherent tragedy to all of it mm-hmm. all right yeah, I, I I think that that's that's really interesting because it is, to a certain extent, it's it's a prequel that does set up like that future that is in the old Planet of the Apes movies, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and and that is a future that is not good for humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, and that's great. I mean. Uh, I, I think we could probably talk like five more hours about these movies. But, <laughs> oh, for sure. But we perhaps, definitely could. But perhaps we should cut it off here. So, um, Aaron and Carly, uh, you guys have a podcast, I hear? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, we have a podcast called Hit Factory. Um, it is uh, Carly and I journeying through the films of the 1990s um it's not explicitly just you know the american and and hollywood uh studio system films of the 90s it's it's much broader than that but we do sometimes principally focus on those films um because we found that you know even even in an era where it was uh we were supposedly beyond politics and we were sort of in this sort of uh you know neoliberal end of history kind of moment uh, the the films themselves often betray that apoliticism, and uh, and there is often lots to talk about in terms of the ways that a film challenges or reinforces that kind of centrism and uh, and sort of Clintonite triangulated ideology that that pervaded all sorts of uh, you know consumer elements and neoliberal society at large. Um, 
Yeah, the, the films tell on themselves very often and it's always fun kind of going back and, you know, we, we kind of casually and, and, uh, sort of ironically say that, that we were ruining everyone's, uh, movies, like favorite movies, uh, for them. <laughs> uh, but, but it really actually has, I think, spawned a sort of reverence for these films in both of us, you know, like we, we don't hate these movies the same way we don't hate Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It's a great movie, mm -hmm. despite the fact that its politics aren't particularly challenging, um, you know, the, these these movies are things that we grew up with and and created us, and we have a certain level of of personality and identification with. Um, so it's so it's really kind of fun and interesting for us to kind of dig deep on these and and find out what what the underlying messages of the film really are. Excellent. All right, and that would be what uh, you're on Patreon slash Hit Factory. Yeah, we're Patreon uh, slash Hit Factory Pod. Actually, we're on on Twitter as well at Hit Factory Pod, um, and Instagram is forthcoming as well. If you just want to see us posting stupid photos and stories on there as well, um, and yeah, we we mostly just shit post and and uh, link to to our uh, our show. So <laughs> uh, if that's what you're looking for, please follow um, and uh, and subscribe if you I must. think you're underselling the social presence of Hit Factory for for the record, but that's, that's right. just my perspective. Well, that is how we came to be here today, I guess, but through through riffing with with uh, Carlo in the mentions, so yeah, no good. It's all good. All right. Well, uh, and that's been uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I'll give it two thumbs up. Um uh, maybe four thumbs up because I'd be using my eight feet. <laughs> right. My eight thumb feet. <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and see you next time.